First Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11. One of the most peculiar attributes of God is this word sovereignty. You notice in the spelling the word reign is in there. Reign. It really means the supreme or highest authority. And by definition, there really can only be one sovereignty. But the way we talk about it often in, in human terms is there's people sovereign over a certain arena. Uh, uh, you may remember Dukes of Hazard. Anybody remember watching Dukes of Hazard? Okay, Bo and Luke Duke would be r- driving away from the, trying to get away from the law and authority. And where were they trying to get? Does anybody remember what they were always trying to get? To the county line. Now, why were they trying to get to the county line? Because at least in the show, I don't think this is true, really, but in the show, the police for one county had no authority in another. So as soon as they got across the county line, they could stop and go, because they couldn't cross the county line, right? That was their jurisdiction or sovereignty. Uh, what What we know, and this is true for us, is that God is sovereign over everything. All of it is. United States, Africa, Zimbabwe... Australia, he is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign right now. Hand that over later, making God sovereign. But that sovereignty, how it works for him, is really strange. And we kind of get this in 1 Kings chapter 11. Um, there's a, uh, just join me at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Oh, by the way, there was one other thing. I think this is Canaan's debut at Valley View. Isn't that right? So if you haven't seen Canaan, most beautiful, almost one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen, be sure to check her out over here, okay? That sounds weird. Go, go see her and meet her, okay, uh, over here. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. What would you think a sovereign would do, has all authority and control, if he was angry with one person in the world? Just take him out, right? Here's the interesting thing about God's sovereignty is it allows free will. He allows it. You can spit in his face if you want to. You can raise a fist at God if you want to. That explains why a lot of people want to say, we've talked about this before, that God's in control of the world. Well, if he were in control of the world, like intimate, ultimate control of everything in the world, the world wouldn't look like it does right now. He allows free will. Somehow he's still sovereign, but he has free will. So he's angry at Solomon because Solomon is, has kind of turned away from him and turned to other gods. He, God appeared to him twice, commanded him concerning this. He shouldn't go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, here's the punishment I'm going to do for you. Since this has been your practice, here's what God's sovereignty does. It allows our free will, but he responds to it in a way that's consistent with his purposes. Go ahead and be that way if you want to, but I'm sovereign enough to do what I want to in response to your free will. And so he says, you've not kept my covenant statutes I've commanded you. I will tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to one of your servants. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Here's the other weird thing here. God's promises limit his free will when God says something it limits him I'll make you a guarantee 
God will never, ever destroy the world by water again. How many think that's true? How do you know? So that means God can never go, man, I shouldn't have said that. I've changed my mind. I've talked about the prerogative of God. He can change his mind. Not once he speaks. Isn't that interesting? He limits himself. It's, it's like he, he, he keeps some things out of the realm of possibility. If you are a person who with your free will responds to God in obedience and lives your life faithfully, trusting Jesus as your Savior, he cannot destroy you. Is that true? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, because he makes a promise and because he gives his word, you can absolutely know they'll never go against it. That's crazy, but that's the sovereignty. But it's also the incredible nature of a God who cannot lie. And so he says to Solomon, I can't, because of the promise he made to David, I can't just take the kingdom away. I can't just say, well, forget all that. I'll start all over. He can't do that. He made a promise to David, but he says to Solomon, you know what I can do? I can take what you think as the kingdom and I can whittle it down, baby. I'm going to whittle it down to one tribe, actually two, two tribes, and you can have that and the other 10 go to somebody else. So yes, I'm keeping my promise, but it looks a lot different than you thought it would look. That's how God does this stuff. It's amazing to me. It's the nature of it. So here's what God did. The Lord raised up an adversary. Number verse 14 against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He's down south. Edom is this nation of people who uh, were uh, offspring of a red-haired man. Anybody remember what his name was? Don't answer, Randy. Um, <laughs> Joel, don't answer. Esau, right. So the Edomites are all the Esau people. Uh, he was the royal house of Edom. David in 2 Samuel 8 destroyed nearly all of that, except some of the people got away. And Hadad was one of them. Hadad got away. He was a little baby. His people got away. And they go down to Egypt, and they find asylum in Egypt. And the Egyptians treat them very good. And in fact, marry off a sister-in-law to him. They, they, they want an alliance because they realize he's got, and he, they want him to stay there. But notice what it says. It's interesting the way it describes his journey down to Egypt. It sounds just like Moses. You know, going through Midian, verse 18, and took men with him from Paran, came to Egypt. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave him a house, assigned him an allowance, and gave him food, and gave him land. I mean, he was, he was, he was king of the Egyptians. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, gave marriage to uh, sister of his own wife. The sister bore him children, all that. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David had died... He said to Pharaoh, let me depart. I want to go to my own country, just south of Israel. What have you lacked? Why do you want to go? I, just let me go. And so he goes down there, and he becomes this pain in Solomon's side. Now, when Solomon became king, he said, I don't have any adversaries. But that didn't stay true. God raised up adversaries. I think it's interesting. God is behind this adversary. Could God be behind your enemies? Could he want to raise up enemies in your life? 
Not necessarily for your punishment, but for your discipline. I mean, you know, we're told you got to love your enemies, but what if you don't have any? Oh, God, make sure of that. There's going to be somebody, right? God raised up an adversary. Also, Reason, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master in Syria. And this guy was north of Israel, and he, he became a marauder. That's what it says. He was one of these guerrilla warfare people, and from the north he bothered Solomon. And so he was attacked from the north and from the south. No major wars, you know, but just enough to be annoying to Solomon. And, and uh, God was behind both of them. And then verse 26, Jeroboam becomes a great, a great servant for Solomon. He notices he's a great industrious young man, and he decides, I'm going to make you in charge of the forced labor of the northern tribes. And so he, he becomes this, but then all of a sudden he becomes a thorn in his side, and he has to run off to Egypt. He runs off to Egypt, and the Egyptians take care of him until it's time for him to come back and cause trouble too. God even wanted him to have an Israelite adversary. God is responsible for our discipline. We, hear, we understand this in Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines just like, just like any other father, his ch- ch- children, to, uh, to, to shape them into responsible, constructive people. His sovereignty allows you to have your free will, but he'll respond to it properly. He limits it by his promises, and he's responsible for discipline raises up certain adversaries in your life. These are all things God will do for you. And here's the interesting thing, this weird kind of response. God was behind Jeroboam. I want you to see this because God sends his prophet to Jeroboam. I will not, verse 34, and the way he does this, by the way, is I'm just make this a little shorter. He wears this new outfit. This prophet comes to him in this new, uh, clo- this new clothing, and then he takes this clothing off and he tears it up into ten pieces and says to Jeroboam, you just pick ten. I'm going to give you ten of the twelve tribes, and then the other two are going to belong uh, still to Solomon, still to, Is- to-, to Judah and the house of David. But I'm going to make a new promise. I want you to see this. Nevertheless, verse 34, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler, make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. I'll take you, I will reign over all that your soul desires, and you'll be king over Israel. If you'll listen to what I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I'll be with you, will build you a sure house just like I did for David and give Israel to you. This is a promise very much like what was made to David, made with Jeroboam. Now there's going to be two God-blessed kingdoms. And get this line, verse 39. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. I'm using you to afflict them. Can God use things to afflict you? Can he introduce things into your life or allow things into your life that afflict you in order to produce this discipline 
Think about Paul for a minute, and he's begging God, please take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Please, I can do so much more for you if you'll take this thing out, all the limitations it gives me. And God says, you know, I, Satan put it there, but I think, uh, I think I'm going to leave it there. It serves my purposes better than your health. If you believe in the sovereignty of God... You have to adopt a view that says the things that afflict me and annoy me may be for God's purpose. Does that change how you experience them? You know, I have this chronic thing and it, it just makes me annoyed and I wish I could get rid of it and live free of it. But what if, what if by doing that it changes your spiritual dimension so much and personality so much that you no longer need God and you don't find yourself crying to God at all? I, I talk to these alcoholics and you know what they say? You know, I know they have a higher power. They have a higher power and I think this higher power is helping me day by day to overcome this addiction. But once in a while, one of them will say, you know what, wouldn't it, bring, wouldn't it be to the higher, glory, higher power's greater glory if he would just remove it? If I didn't have to cry, I didn't have to cry out, God, please help me and, and show my powerlessness constantly day by day. Every time this temptation comes upon me, it plagues me all the time. I'm never really free of it. I have to cry out at any moment just to endure it. And then, and then comes the answer from other alcoholics. If you didn't have those moments, you wouldn't cry out to God at all. You would lose contact with God at all. This is to drive you back to him. Because what he knows is prosperity makes it to where you don't cry to God at all. And you're fiercely independent of him. So many of us need something to drive us back to God. Because you know what? If we think we're handling it on our own, we'll think we're handling it on our own. And I don't need God at all. So he puts that little affliction in there. Just to remind you, you're not all that. God's sovereignty will do that. We're going to look at Rehoboam next time, but this whole kingdom, as Solomon dies, his son, his son becomes the next one. And all of Israel gathers in chapter 12. We're all going to declare him king over all of us. The United Kingdom was going to continue. At least it seems that way at the beginning of chapter 12. We already know it's not because God's deemed it so. It's a strange thing. God said something and then people think they're doing something else. But when they gather Rehoboam up in the northern, why did they meet in a northern city? That's a weird, interesting question. But they meet up there in a northern city and they say, we're going to make you king, but listen to us before, before we do this. Before we announce you as the, the king who takes over for Solomon, we, we, please take it easy on us. Your father taxed us just like crazy, and we are so tired and exhausted from all the work and the forced labor and all that. Please lighten our load. And he listens to him for a while. He gets the old people together, and the old people say, yes, that's right, lighten the load. We've served him too hard too long. He gets the young people together and says, hey, you just, you just show them the worldly point, and you make it even tougher, and you show them that you got more muscle in your finger than he did in his whole body. And he went with the older people, and it ripped the kingdom to shreds. Interesting thing. He sends somebody to try to placate the other side. Doesn't work. He gets an army together and thinks, I'm going to fight them and make them be united. And God sends a prophet, and that prophet says, y'all go home. Y'all cut this out. You know who caused this? I'm doing this. 
This has nothing to do with older folks or younger folks. I'm doing this. This is my doing, verse 24 of chapter 12. Crazy stuff. Here's four quick observations. Peace can only be secured by submission to God. Solomon's wisdom can't do it. Wise diplomacy can't do it. Stern warning can't do it. Military strength can't do it. Only following God brings peace. This kind of explains the strangeness of the Christmas greeting. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Did Jesus bring peace on earth? All those two-year-olds dead. There's been conflict over religion ever since. Even Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. So what in the world does it mean when these angels say he's going to bring peace? Here's the thing. He brings the option of peace. He is the means of real peace. But whether you choose it or not, whether you choose to submit to him or not, well, that's up to you. But now peace is possible, but it can only be secured when you decide to submit to God. And when you step out of that, even social messes happen. I, I really think in our country, the social messes happen when we no longer have a, a, a submission to our sovereign God. Second, God uses the nations to accomplish His purpose. We see this constantly, most clearly in Babylon I'm going to use them to come down here and whoop you all, take you into captivity, and accomplish my purpose. They're my servants. And then when he gets them out, he raises up Cyrus of the Persians and says, he's my servant. And, and, but he's not an Israelite at all. And today, does he do the same thing? We even looked at this morning that what they did to Jesus and all the nations conspiring to, to get him out of the way, and they thought they were hurting him, and God is laughing them to derision. He's using them. He used the Jews. He used the Romans to do what needed to be done for the sake of the world. Does this happen today? I have to trust it does, but we don't get a book, chapter, and verse, and there's no interpretation from God. It is impossible for us to stand up here and say that what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians today is God using them to discipline Ukraine. We can't do that. But God's in there somewhere. God's in there somewhere. I don't have the wisdom and the intelligence or the connection with God to, to give me a clear interpretation, but God is, is in there. Then, third, there's many reasons for things that are happening there are three or four, if you ask the question, if you did a research question on this, on this passage and said, what caused the division of the kingdom? Well, you could say, well, uh, Rehoboam didn't listen to the older people. Is that true? Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, it, and it could be because of all the tension and the political tension of the area. Is that true? That, that could be true. But ultimately, it's this. God's punishing Solomon for his disobedience to him. I did a research paper in ninth grade. Uh, we were forced to do it with this crazy eccentric history teacher. And he said, give, us, give me a paper with all the reasons for the Civil War. Now, there's lots of people who think there's just one reason. And my father-in-law used to be, would go through a big old fight. I could get a fight started with this because I would say, you know, it's slavery. No, it's slavery. It's states' rights. And he would go on this, Lord, because he was a history buff person. 
And that's true too. But in this research paper, there are 25 reasons. And he says, well, you got most of them. There were others, and he started telling me what they were, but there were several reasons. You know what? There's often a lot of reasons for the things that happen, and God is often right there somewhere hidden in there. That's how God kind of works, right? One last thing is God is sovereign, and we are free for now. We're free for now. The changes we make will elicit a change from God. And when God's ways are not respected, the results will be disruptive to us. Because He can change what He does. And in fact, He has to change what He does to be the same in who He is. So if we change our position toward Him, we decide we're going to turn away from Him. Because a lot of people think that you cannot turn away once you've chosen to follow Him. But that's a little misleading. You can choose. You know that thing where it says nothing can separate you from the love of God? That's true. That end of Romans 8 is wonderful. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But you know what's not listed there? You. You can turn away from that love. You can choose to leave it. I'm persuaded neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from love God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All that's true. But you can turn away from it. He will never, ever, ever take away your right to choose to forsake Him. Because that's just the God we serve. He's sovereign, but He protects your free will, good or bad. And you choose it by your choices. It's in your best interest to utilize your free will to serve the sovereign God who's in charge of all things. And if for whatever reason... You're in opposition to him right now, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. You are living a life that's in posture of opposition to him. I urge you to exercise your free will and turn back to him or turn to him for the first time. We already know what he'll do. He'll accept you, wash away your sins, and make you his child. We know what he'll do. He's predictable. Because he's made a promise. But the choice is completely up to you. And tonight, you have another chance to choose. As we stand and as we sing.